Hey you guys, it's me, Shelly Duvall. Um, I just wanted to pop in super quick and let you know that I'm thinking about possibly doing another mailbag episode because that was so fun and I don't know, I just liked it. I like hearing from you. So <clears throat> I want you guys to send me things, send me whatever you want, questions, things I've missed, people you want me to cover, uh, what's your favorite scary movie, my favorite celebrity sex tape, whatever you feel like asking really, uh, to smushroompod at gmail.com. Again, smushroompod at gmail.com. Just send me shit. Also, by the way, make sure that for the Patreon, as of right now, you are going to patreon.com slash v2 coming soon. Um, more updates are going to be happening with that uh, very shortly. But for now, make sure that you're using that link instead of the old one. And I think that's it. I'm going to shut the fuck up now. Bye. You guys, welcome to episode 119 of The Smush Room, the podcast that deep dives on the well-known, more importantly, not so well-known hookups of your favorite reality television starlets. It's me, Troy McEady, and oh my god, it's just us. It's been a couple weeks. Um, Thanksgiving, Liz Bentley and I did the Wonderful Whites episode, if you haven't listened to that, and um, the week before, I took a week off for some family stuff. And now I am in the thick of this Beyonce and Jay-Z episode and having night sweats and terrors and just really living in a fear-based world right now. It's, it's, uh, I'm just, I just want to make sure that I'm covering all of it. And before we even get into that, how was your Thanksgiving? Let me stop being an asshole. How was your Thanksgiving? How did everything turn out? Did you get anything good on Black Friday? Uh, mine was great. I actually had a Friendsgiving this year because my family is forever dysfunctional. Uh, <laughs> so, which was fine. I, I went to one of my best friend's houses. Um, we, so my really good friend, Megan is a Reed Drummond head. Like she like loves the pioneer woman in the way that I love the barefoot Contessa. So like I'm an Ina gal through and through always have been, always will be. And she lives, laughs, and loves Reed Drummond. I think that she secretly wants Reed Drummond's life. I think that she wants to come home to Lad and the boys and wrangle up steaks and and cow pokes or whatever. I think she loves her life in a way that's like the way that I love Ina. So I completely understand it. It's aspirational lifestyle television. <laughs> and uh, we made this like Reed Drummond just, I mean, it was wild. It was every, we had two turkeys. One of them was smoked. One of them was roasted. It was just, it was re-drumming on crack for two straight days. And it was fucking amazing. Um, so yeah, it was super fun. I didn't end up buying anything for Black Friday. I do remember last year I was recording um, Anne Heche and Ellen DeGeneres, if you feel like a throwback lesbian moment. Um and I had like bought a TV for Black Friday and I was so proud because I've never really done anything like that before and I haven't since. Um, I've only ever really purchased like clothes for myself on Black Friday. I never made one of those big giant like doorbuster purchases. Um, and I just came to the realization this year that Black Friday is just like the ultimate scam. Like most stores on Black Friday were doing like 25 and 30% off you can take your 30% off and shove it in your fucking anal cavity. Are you kidding me? 30% off? Fuck you. It's Black Friday. What can I get for a penny? Like, what electronic can I get for a penny after sleeping at a tent for six days 
outside of your establishment. You know what I mean? I don't want 30% off. And also, by the way, I don't want any pots or pans. I don't want a fucking, you know, air vacuum sealer thing for food. I don't want Tupperware. I don't want a ninja blender. And I don't want a knife set. So I guess I don't want anything for Black Friday because that's the only thing that they sell. I'm just, I'm over it. You know what I mean? I'm over it. I'm leaning into the curmudgeonly years of my life. I'm in my twilight years. <laughs> so I'm done with, with uh, shenanigans and things like that. I'm not going to be sleeping outside of any Best Buys or anything like that. It's just not happening for me. Anyway, this episode is really fun. I don't know if it's fun. It's informative. It's fu- whatever. It's fun. But the thing that I wanted to run by you guys before we even get started is the idea of possibly doing a four-part Beyonce and Jay-Z thing. Because here's the thing. Hear me out. I know. Sit down. You almost dropped your coffee. Sit down. Pull over to the side of the road. We'll talk. I don't see a world in which I'm going to be able to cover all of Beyonce and Jay-Z's actual relationship in an hour. I'm going to be talking about Jay-Z today. We're going to be talking about Jay-Z and uh, Dame Dash and, you know, him selling drugs in the uh, Marcy House projects and all of those things, um, him sort of becoming this business mogul. That's what we're focusing on today. But run it by me. Slide into my DMs. Comment under this post. What do you think? Is it too much? Is it too much? (laughs) Is it too much to do a four-part series? Do you think that I should just try and figure it all out and do it in one episode Or could we split it up even more? I've never done that before, but there's a first time for everything. I remember a time in which doing two parts seemed absolutely fucking batshit crazy to me. So you let me know if you even care enough. I don't even know if you care enough. (laughs) You know what I mean? I don't know. But just let me know. Um, Aside from that, I think that we can like go ahead and get into it. I don't think I have anything else to say. Um... This is an interesting one. Jay-Z is obviously sort of like the definitive rags to riches story. I would say maybe more so than any celebrity I've probably ever covered on the podcast. Just because there's so many famous people who, you know, go from being kind of poor or like even fully impoverished to all of a sudden having like a massive amount of money. And that's one thing. But Jay-Z falls into a completely different category. Like he is the 1%. He's 1% wealthy. Like, he knows the codes to the lockboxes. He knows several prime ministers on speed dial. You know what I mean? Like, he knows how and when the world will end. You know what I'm getting at. Jay-Z is wealthy in a way that you and I will never, ever understand. Um, We will never shake hands with the people that Jay-Z is shaking hands with. And we will never be a part of the underground lizard meetings that Jay-Z has been a part of. Whatever door leads him to the city beneath the earth, um, beneath the earth's surface, I, you know, we'll never know. We'll never know how to get there. And he's also one of those celebrities whose origin story is so much a part of his identity that it almost at this point feels like folklore. You know what I mean? So I'm going to do my best in telling the most authentic version of this story that I can and not really so much the behind the music version, but that, you know what I'm trying to say, um, so Sean Carter grew up in the Marcy House Projects, very famously in Brooklyn, um, something that he's sort of become known for, 
he was raised by his mother and his dad was a part of his life until he was a kid around like, I think I read 11 or 12, but the crack epidemic sort of removed his dad from the family, which we will definitely talk about. In 2013, he told Vanity Fair, we were living in a, a really tough situation, but my mother managed. She juggled, you know, sometimes we'd pay the light bill. Sometimes we'd pay the phone bill. Sometimes the gas went off. We weren't starving. We were eating. We were okay, but it was things like, you know, you don't want to be embarrassed when you go to school. You don't want to have dirty sneakers or wear the same clothes every day. And the interviewer who, uh, that Vanity Fair interviewer who went to go visit his apartment complex that he grew up in, uh, said in the description that it was bleak, sad, and a place with a sense of hopelessness because people who live there can't escape, which, you know, checks out. Like, the projects are obviously the projects no matter where you live, but the projects during the crack epidemic is an entirely different level of just systematic oppression that, I mean, me, I can't even fathom. And, you know, to get out and live a happy life is an achievement an achievement in itself. But to get out and become Jay-Z is lightning striking you seven times in a row and then winning the lottery twice in a day. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's unimaginable. In terms of childhood, Jay had a pretty typical like inner city kid life. You know what I mean? He was the kid that would, you know, spray fire hydrants into the street in the summer and buy, you know, bulk quantities of discount candy bars to upsell to people. You know what I mean? To be completely honest with you in doing research for this episode, I realized that Jay-Z, Sean Carter, as a child, is the true definition of the kid I fear the most when I go to the city. That kid who's like wise beyond their years in a way that feels almost unsavory, like a child shouldn't be so smart. You know what I mean? Because uh, he's been wheeling and dealing all over fucking New York City since he was born. There's actually an episode of The Simpsons where Marge looks out her window and she sees Bart flying a kite in the middle of the night. And she says there's something about flying a kite at night that seems so unwholesome. And that's how I feel about inner city kids that are like too good at hustling adults. Like they're just, they're unwholesome. You know what I mean? And I fear those kids because I want to be them. Like adult me feels threatened by that level of intelligence. Um, it's, it's threatening to me and I don't like it. Um, but he also describes his house during the early years of his childhood as the party house. It was the house where everyone, you know, kids, including adults would end up, you know what I mean? People just ended up at their house in big groups and um, like most black children in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, he grew up trying to emulate Michael Jackson. Uh, when he turned 11, his uncle, so his dad's brother, was stabbed and murdered, which caused his family to um, to sort of split up. His dad turned to drugs, and it was also around this time that he started to like really isolate himself and shut down. Um, this was around the same time that the you know, the crack epidemic was starting, and crack was introduced to the world you know and obviously living in the projects jay was at the heart of what that meant and you know it's unimaginable for me especially like having been born in like 88 like 
to imagine what it looked like for a drug to be introduced to the world that just takes over and ravages your neighborhood in the way crack did in the 80s and 90s like it's very specific it's so different than like you know fucking molly or whatever like it's just something that i can't i can't even wrap my head around what it looks like um you know we had gone from cocaine being this sort of like chic like club drug that if mentioned would put you in the mind of this like a studio 54 moment or like some sort of hollywood glamour thing to then seeing the demand for cocaine drop out because the supply was so high everybody was doing coke um, everybody had access to it, which then caused drug dealers to scratch their heads and be like, how can we make this shit more stronger and more addicting? Hmm. Baking soda in a spoon. Okay. We'll figure it out. I read this really interesting article on uprocks.com from this year. Uh, when I, I got really, I got really deep into like the crack epidemic. Like I couldn't stop watching like documentaries and reading articles about just this specific time period and this subject. And they said, it's no wonder that the communities hit hardest by the crack epidemic of the late 80s were America's poorest. In the 1960s, white flight from uh, from communities like South Central Los Angeles resulted in loss of employment for the remaining black and Latino residents who were left with few options in a world hostile to any semblance of their success. Negative policing driven by policies formed from the lasting legacy of the 13th Amendment loophole for incarcerated felons and the profit motives of the private prison complex further exacerbated dire straits for vulnerable communities. Combine all that with the underfunded education system seemingly designed to fail kids of color throughout the city and a situation already rife with tension and desperation, and the result was a chilling, perfect environment to incubate the burgeoning crack epidemic that would soon sweep the nation with hysteria and racially driven fears. Uh, of gang violence and devastation brought on by this little white rock and glass pipe. And we're obviously going to talk about Jay's drug dealing days, but it's just really insane to view this from a bird's eye perspective and really look at how much we carry the baggage of this specific time and how lasting the pres- like the the effects were. You know what I mean? Like the crack epidemic had such a profound impact on the black and latino experience it's just so it's so wild uh jay told vanity fair in 2013 the whole crack era the reagan years it was everywhere he continued it just engulfed you music and drugs exploded in 1988 crack was everywhere and it was inescapable there wasn't any place you could go for isolation or a break from it you go in the hallway and there are crackheads in the hallway you look out in the puddles on the curb and crack vials are littered on the side of the curb you could smell it in the hallways that disgusting putrid smell. I can't really explain it, but it's still in my mind when I think about it. Jay says his mother knew he was dealing drugs, but says we never really had those conversations. We just pretty much ignored it. But she knew. All of the mothers knew. It sounds like how could you let your son do that? But I'm telling you, it was normal. Jay learned how to hustle and make money from his best friend, David Irby, who he had known since he was a child. His, you know, their parents were friends they grew up together, they lived right down the hall from another, and he basically taught him everything that he knew when it came to selling drugs and actually running, like, not just being a drug dealer, but running, like, a drug empire, you know what I mean, because there's such a big difference between somebody who just, like, sells people drugs and somebody who is running, like, a drug business, those are two very different things, and Jay-Z was very much running 
a business in the Marcy House projects. Like it was not just him selling crack in the hallway. Um, he taught him how to obviously make crack. He taught him how to supply it. Um, he taught him how, you know, supply and demand works. He taught him how to basically turn a person out so that, you know, they become dependent on your supply and your supply only. Um, and then David ended up moving to Trenton and their business expanded beyond that. So now he's not only running this like outrageously lucrative drug business out of the Marcy House projects, but now his business has expanded to another project community like miles away. So it's, this is wild. And then during this very introverted period of his life, he started expressing himself and his emotions through lyrics. He started writing he was basically writing poetry, you know what I mean? Because when you're a male, especially a black male, especially a black male living in the Marcy House projects, you have to uh, refer to it as lyrics. But he was writing poems um, and he would write them in really tiny, you know, illegible chicken scratch that only he could read. And then that turned into him making beats with his friends, which quickly, of course, became him like actually like laying down full on tracks his mom ended up buying him a beatbox machine and uh, he became obsessed with hip hop. Not only really hip hop, but Jay-Z as a kid was obsessed with everything. He just loved music and he started obsessively reading um, dictionaries and the, the, <laughs> and the desaras to learn new words so that he could incorporate them into his rap. So he was like expanding his vocabulary in this way that, who am I right now? Vocabulary? He was expanding his vocabulary in a way that was like really intimidating to the people in his community that he rapped with because he knew all these crazy words that they had to like look up to understand what the fuck he was saying. And then he would listen to Slick Rick and Run DMC and Dougie Fresh and Curtis Blow and just repetitively over and over and over obsessively listen to their, their lyrics until he knew all of them by heart. Um, he got the nickname Jazzy from one of the kids in his neighborhood because, you know, the kids would stand around and watch him rap. Like he would literally stand and they would form a circle around him and he would just perform every day. He also went by Shawnee D. And when he was 15, he met Jonathan Burks, AKA Jazzo. Now, if you don't know the story of Jay-Z and Jazzo, then you've chosen the right episode to listen to because I'm going to tell it to you. Um, He's famous for having mentored Jay-Z. He kind of like, he created Jay-Z. He gave him his name. He taught him how to sort of expand his artistry. And this is a really interesting story. So Jazz had gone away to college and established himself as this sort of fairly well-known um, local rapper of his time. And when he came back, people in the neighborhood told him that there was this new kid his name is Shawnee D. He's the best rapper in the projects right now. He knows all these crazy words. He raps kind of like you. So you have to battle him. And the thing that Jay-Z and Jazz had in common was that they both had this very sort of poetic way of stringing words together. Like that was their thing. Flow and wording. Like just stringing words together in a way that was just so beautiful and so perfect. So they had this very sort of like big brother relationship. They ended up battling, they had a rap battle and it didn't even matter. Like they were both, 
They were like bromancing each other. They were head over heels, infatuated, obsessed, in love with each other. And they were inseparable. BET.com released an article this year about their friendship that said, uh, Sean Carter and Jonathan Burks met as kids in the Marcy House projects and quickly bonded over their love of rhyming. I connected with an older kid who had a reputation as the best rapper in Marcy, wrote Jay in his 2010 book, Decoded. Jazz was his name, and we started practicing our rhymes into a heavy-ass tape recorder with a makeshift mic attached. They would freestyle and battle for hours together, pushing the limits of one another's, and one another's vocabularies and backing each other up in local battles on the block. So a couple years later, Jazz secured a record deal with EMI and released an album called Word to the Jazz, which like, I mean, like it literally sounds like a elderly person from the 80s making fun of hip hop culture named his album Word to the Jazz. Um, Jay basically worked as his hype man. They were each other's creative counterparts, and he also put Jay on a couple of songs, a song named Hawaiian Sophie and The Originators, which Jazz has the nickname The Originator because he is the person who was known for originating Jay-Z. And, you know, the really interesting thing about Jay and Jazz is that even though they had everything in common artistically, the way that these two men viewed the music industry was night and day. Jazz was very, you know, old school, anti-establishment, like, genuinely looked at music as an extension of his life he literally referred to it in a documentary as his recreational sport um he wasn't really interested in the business side of the industry and he had no real interest in fame per se whereas jay saw music as obviously this amazing creative outlet but also something that would get him out of his situation. Like music was his meal ticket as well as something that he knew he was really good at. And Jay was also on top of it, by the way, a very, very successful drug dealer. So, I mean, like successful to the point that he's walking around the Marcy House projects with a platinum chain before people even knew platinum was an option for jewelry. Like he invented that. Um, he was hood rich and he liked the business side of making money. So their working relationship was sort of doomed from the start. If you, I don't know, to me, it was very obvious reading this, that this was like not going to, I knew who this guy was and I knew that they had a, a falling out, but I was like, oh, this is obviously going to be based on the fact that they're just completely different individuals. It's also worth mentioning, by the way, and I really, really want to beat this into the ground I want you to dig this so deep into your earbuds that you damage your ears. I want you to damage your ears for this bit of information. By the standards of a kid who grew up in Marcy Projects and came from nothing, he had already basically made it. You know what I mean? Jay-Z had an apartment. He had money. He had expensive jewelry. He had a car. And he could afford to help his mom. So... Most people in his situation, coming from where he had just come from, would have been completely content with what he had, but Jay saw beyond that, and it's crazy having gone back and done research for him. Like, I know that people talk about Jay-Z being this, like, business mogul and being really good at, you know, the business side of the entertainment industry, but it's crazy when you go back even to him being, like, this 17, 16-year-old kid 
who really didn't know better, but just instinctively was so good at wheeling and dealing and like, for lack of a better term, using people. Like he just knew, he knew how to use people. He knew when to use them and he knew when to cut them out of his life. Like he is the king of cutting the head off of a friendship when it's time, which we will obviously talk about. We are in fact discussing Damon Dash this evening. So as part of his EMI deal, Jazz was sent to London to record an album and he brought along Jay and a young and very unknown Irv Gotti. Ironically, while he was overseas, the feds showed up to Marcy House and did this massive drug raid. So all of his close friends and his, I guess, employees, if you want to call them that, um, all ended up going to prison. And he literally, by the skin of his teeth, didn't end up in jail. Um, also jazz was basically flown out to London to be told by the label that they wanted to drop him. So Jay wrote in his book up until the London trip, uh, my life could be mapped out into a perfect triangle, Brooklyn, Washington Heights, and Trenton. That was his route. Like started in Brooklyn, you know, it went to Trenton and then Washington Heights and that was all gone. So now we are 24 minutes into this episode and we are going to be talking about the Damon Dash of it all, which is so interesting. I get a lot of requests uh, from you guys through like, and I've gotten them since I started to start doing like the dissolving of friendships. I have people all the time message me and be like, can you, I know that this isn't like a couple technically, but this friendship would be so interesting for you to, um, go through and like try and figure out why these people aren't friends anymore. What happened, blah, blah, blah. And after doing this Damon Dash and Jay-Z thing, like, I think it's confirmed. I really do want to start doing that. It feels a little convoluted. You know what I mean? It's a little bit like, what does this podcast become? Uh, Cause there's so many things, but I don't know. I kind of love that. You know what I mean? I love the idea of examining friendships that have publicly fallen apart, just like a relationship. It's no different. Anyway, So at this particular point, Jay-Z is completely disillusioned by the entertainment industry because he's just watched his best friend be flown overseas to basically have pie thrown in his face by a room full of executives. And it doesn't help that his mentor is someone who has basically beat it into his mind that you should never strive for anything in the entertainment business and, you know, none of it's worth it business, you know, deals all fall through, you know what I mean? Just make money and stay where you are and be content and don't strive for anything because it's all bullshit. So he did what he knew how to do. And he went back to hustling and selling drugs. And at the same time, just a few blocks away, a man named Damon Dash was managing a hip hop group called Future Sound, uh, who was signed by a man named DJ Clark Kent. That is a very important name. I'm going to need you to write it down or something. Uh, DJ Clark Kent worked for Atlantic Records. So Clark was trying desperately to get Jay signed to a label. Atlantic and Def Jam turned them down. Again, very important. And in his early days, Dame went from like, you know, being a drug dealer to starting his own business as a party coordinator. And then he became a club promoter, which eventually led him to, you know, working in entertainment Um, And he started managing groups. So Clark insisted that Damon meet this 
rap prodigy drug dealer from Brooklyn who had been featured on a couple songs with Jazzo and, you know, very desperately wanted a record deal. And not only that, but, you know, he's one of the greatest rappers of all time. You'll never believe how good this guy is and how good he is at putting words together. He's a poet, blah, blah, blah. So Jay and Dame Dash meet and they have this instant connection. Dame was described by DJ Clark Kent as ruthless when it came to work and business in the sense that he would literally stop at nothing for his artists. He would do anything to make sure his artists weren't being screwed over. He was basically like a, like a, almost like a bodyguard that also worked as a manager. Like he would strong arm people. He was a little bit of a bully, but like in a good way during this time. So Damon and Jay were inseparable when they met, which led to Jay sort of slowly wedging jazz out of his life. And in documentaries and interviews and stuff that I've read, he's described it as you know, two friends just sort of going their separate ways. But you can definitely tell that he was really hurt by their friendship dissolving and him sort of being, you know, replaced by this newer model. You know what I mean? Dame Dash had what he didn't have, which was business savvy. Um, And it also didn't hurt that Jay and Dame had such a good, they were such a good team at the beginning because here's the thing. Where Jay and Jazz, I hope that, stop me if you get confused, if you need like a, 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 like a key, a word key or something, let me know. There's a lot of J's and Jazzes and Dames and, and Dashes and things happening. Um, so where Jay and Jazz were very compatible artistically, Jay and Dame were just as compatible in a business sense. Jay was, you know, the music prodigy and Dame was the savvy businessman who had connections all over New York City. They truly became inseparable. And what you need to know about Dame Dash, if you don't already, is that he is viewed as an asshole. He's been described as arrogant and self-righteous and hard to work with and narcissistic and bullying. Um, But he really is to thank for, you know, really taking Jay to that next level and teaching him how to really navigate the world through the eyes of somebody other than, you know, a a fellow successful drug dealer who didn't really care about business. Like Dane was like the business guy. Um, Dane taught Jay how to be an entertainer and a businessman on a larger scale. And during this time, people outside of Jay's, you know, very small community weren't really checking for him like that. Dame was the one, I mean, Dame was kind of the only one, like the very first person in his life to really view him as the next great rapper of a generation. You know what I mean? I think that Jazz viewed him as very talented. I think he loved that they had this thing together and that they were creative counterparts, but I don't think he viewed Jay in the same way that Dame did. Like, Dame looked at him like, this is this guy is going to take over the world. Like, he knew something that nobody else knew. So during the time that Jay and Dame started working together, this is actually really funny to me. Ugh, so at the time, LL Cool J was considered the best battle rapper in New York City. And he was kind of the only person people were really checking for at that time. He was really, really, really in demand. This was around 92, so he had just released, actually, he had just won a Grammy for Mama Said Knock You Out. Jay, 
who was relatively unknown, had a lot of animosity towards him for that reason. So he basically, this is insane. He basically stalked him and tormented him with Dame until he agreed to battle them. Can we talk for a second? So Dame and DJ Clark Kent come up with this plan to page each other whenever they're out and see LL Cool J somewhere. Then the plan was that they would all show up to where he was and wait for the opportunity to basically read him the house down in front of a bunch of people and embarrass him um, at whatever like bar or music venue they were at. And LL being the cocky fucking lip licking son of a bitch that he was in the 90s, he agreed to battle Jay. Reggie Osei, who was an entertainment lawyer at the time, uh, did an interview this year with Hip Hop DX where he said, Damon Clark would end up in my office the following day laughing about how Jay lit his ass up. Every time, too, they were a bit sour because each battle, this is so funny, each battle LL would kill the vibe and crush Jay's high by flinging the, yo, my next record is dropping next month. Um, When is yours coming out again? He would throw that line at him. Jay, Damon Clark hated that shit. I'm betting those battles are the reason LL is still kind of agitated towards Jay to this day. So basically, every time they had a rap battle, LL Cool J would be like, okay, yes, you rap better than me, but I have a record deal and I'm wealthy. So thank you. You know what I mean? Like he would, <laughs> he would lay the ultimate smack down and be like, it literally, you're the one chasing me around right now in like a Nissan in a tracksuit trying to battle me at my shows. You know what I mean? I'm wealthy now and I have a Grammy. Thank you. Um, Jay started selling mixtapes out of his truck and he was invited to go on tour with Big Daddy Kane and that exposure led him being signed. Uh, what led him being signed? What uh, led to him being signed by a label called Payday Records um, where he released his first uh, official single in my lifetime jay said payday eventually signed me to a deal but we're acting shady the whole time like they didn't know how to work a record or something what why am i reading like a fucking idiot today like they didn't know how to work a record or something um he said the things that they were setting up for me were things that i could have easily done myself they had me traveling places to do in stores and my product wasn't even available in the store that i was going to we shot one video where uh, we shot one video, but when the time came for me to do the video uh, for the second single, I had to be I had to cut it out. They gave me the money and I started my own company. Uh, there was a little arguing back and forth, but our conflict finally got resolved. The bottom line was that they weren't doing their jobs and I had to get out of there and do it myself. So now we can finally talk about Rockefeller Records. Are you ready for the the drama of it all, the dissolving of this friendship and uh, Jay-Z becoming a Illuminati prince. Um, so Jay and Dame obviously needed money to start their own label. So they brought in a silent partner named Kareem Burke, aka Biggs. And Biggs was a drug trafficker. He had a lot of fucking money. So he put money in, Jay put money in, uh, Dame Dash became the executive in charge of handling the business end of things. Jay was the artist slash prodigy and Biggs was just this extremely respected and connected figure, but he kind of stayed behind the scenes. 
Um, they rented a super cheap rundown office in uh, in New York on John Street. Jay said it was uh, one of the dreariest parts of the busiest city in the world. And at this particular point, Jay was still known as this very talented underground artist in New York. He didn't have uh, a lot of mainstream exposure. And according to what I've read, the recording sessions were super competitive between all parties involved in Jay's first album. Uh, The producers would like race to submit beats to him because Jay was, you know, by these people viewed as this like this prodigy that needed to be put on a pedestal and protected at all costs. So, you know, for him to choose one of their beats, like that was a really big deal for them, even though he like was completely unknown. Um, and when he recorded Brooklyn's Finest with Biggie, uh, Jay became super competitive with him and tried to prove that he was like on the same level as him, which Big obviously hated, um, but was later very impressed by, and Biggie later found out that Jay, like him, didn't write down his lyrics, he kept them all in his head, um, so he was super impressed by him. Reasonable Doubt, which was released in June of 1996, is... I think undoubtedly a landmark hip hop record and considered one of the best albums, not only in Jay-Z's career, but of all time. You know what I mean? And it's an interesting, Jay-Z's first album is an interesting one because it was released like right before the gangster rap era that soon kind of took over the world. So it's sort of set apart from all of his other albums and You know, this is most people's favorite Jay-Z album. If you're a Jay-Z fan, like, there's a 99% chance that this is your favorite album of his. And it's considered to be the best album of his career. It also is the album that a lot of people think for sort of bringing, like, ushering in, like, the mafioso era of rap. Um, So, like, rap being inspired by, like, Italian mob culture. Like, that was a whole new thing that was happening. It wasn't new, but he really made it mainstream. And Steve Huey, who was somebody who reviewed the album at the time, said, he's cocky, bordering on arrogant and playful and witty and exudes an effortless, unaffected, cool throughout. And even if he's rapping about rising to the top instead of being there, his material obsessions are already apparent The albums def- in, the, it, in the album's defining cut. And though it might be brief, 22 twos, which not only demonstrates Jay's uh, extraordinary talent as a pure freestyle rapper, but also preaches a subtle message throughout its club hostess. <laughs> Bad behavior gets in the way of making money. Perhaps th- that's why Jay-Z Wax is reflective, uh, not enthusiastically, about the darker side of the streets. So they came up with this idea when his album came out to tell people, to tell the public that they were only doing one album which was this incredible marketing technique because it suddenly turned him into this very serious artist. And, you know, he created like this sort of like forced emotional response to the album for people who didn't even know who he was. All of a sudden people were like, oh, he's only putting out one album. This guy must be, this guy must be an artistic genius. Um, Now this part of the story is a little convoluted But you know that I'm going to obviously take you by your fingertips and gently guide you along. I just need for you to really, really hunker down, really like lean in, turn the radio up, turn the turn the volume up on your phone. There's going to be a lot of names being thrown at you and percentages and things, but we'll get through it. 
So, Dame Dash signed a deal with Moon Roof Records, which at the time was ran by a guy named Will Sokolov. So they asked Will for a distribution deal, not a record deal, because they wanted to fund everything themselves so that they could have a larger profit in the end. For example, the complete opposite of what someone like a Lou Pearlman did with NSYNC, um, you know, where they didn't realize that, you know, their wardrobe and their transportation and their food and their music videos, they were paying for all of it. Uh, they didn't know that. They didn't know that it was being taken out of their of their cut of the money. Jay wanted to pay for all of that stuff himself so that everything that they got back was theirs because he was totally confident in the fact that they had enough money as these like outrageously successful drug dealers that they could pay for whatever they needed to pay for. So at the time, Foxy Brown, I told you there's a lot of names being thrown at you right now. Just calm down. Foxy Brown, who was 16 years old and this sort of phenomenon in New York City at the time, and also DJ Clark Kent's cousin from earlier, Clark set up a collaboration with Foxy and Jay. Jay had written a song, but he couldn't find anyone who could produce it in the way that he wanted it to sound. So who did he contact? None other than his old pal Jazz O. You may remember him because he is now rotting in the Marcy Projects where Jay left him. So they recorded Ain't No Other, Ain't No Other N-Word. I know that th this is a Christian podcast. I know that you're probably listening to this at church. I don't want to scare the congregation. Ain't No Other N-Word. And it became this massive runaway hit that people didn't expect. And they all freaked out because they were like, fuck, we need to catch up with the success of this song. It sold like 500,000 copies. And at that point, it had sold so much that Rockefeller um, was owed a million dollars by that Will Sokolov guy. And what they didn't realize <laughs> was that the deal that they signed was for a percent of his percent. Are you following so they thought that they would be getting whatever they were supposed to be getting when really they signed a deal to get a small percentage of Will Sokolov's earnings. So where they earned like $300,000, I think they said was this, was their first paycheck. Uh, they got 10,000 and he pocketed the rest. So they freaked the fuck out. And the really interesting thing about Damon Dash and um, Jay's sort of relationship at this time was that Jay had really allowed Dame to become like the muscle. Like Jay was the brain. He was the music prodigy and Dame was the hard, like the hardball. like I'll fuck you up if you, if you fuck over my client. Like he was the muscle of their little dynamic. Jay was the, Jay was the corporate artist. You know what I mean? He was the prodigy. Uh, and Dame would like pistol whip you if he needed to basically. So when things like this happened, it was Dame who would show up to somebody like Will's office and threaten to, you know, hold him by his legs over a balcony or whatever. So they went over to his office. They physically threatened him and bullied him into signing a release and they got some undisclosed amount of their money back, but they did threaten him enough that he, uh, that he 
gave them their money. So at this particular time now, Irv Gotti, who was still very much connected with Jay and Dame, was a really big deal at Def Jam. He was doing big things. He was finding really talented artists for them. So Irv, I hope you're following. So Irv had caught wind of how fucked up their deal was with that Will Sokolov guy. And he approached them about bringing them, um, bringing their now hit record to the label, to Def Jam and seeing if they can get signed again. Because remember a few years ago, they went to Def, it was two years ago. They went to Def Jam, tried to get signed. They wanted nothing to do with them. Now he has this album that's sold more than 500,000 copies. It's very successful. People love it. There's a really successful single off of it. Now there's an opportunity for them to sign with Def Jam. Irv, by the way, it wouldn't have happened without Irv Gotti. He basically closed this deal for them. Irv Gotti basically gave Jay... Many men have come along and helped Jay-Z in, a, in in profound ways, but Irv Gotti really helped him get like the record deal that changed his life. Um, he convinced the label to give them a $2 million advance. And there's this really funny moment in one of the documentaries that I watched well, where Will Sokolov was leaving his office and Jay-Z was leaving Def Jam across the street. And he screamed Will's name and he gave him a peace sign. And Will was so confused. He's like, what the hell is he doing? And then he realized that Jay-Z was not giving him a peace sign. He was telling him, look, bitch, I just got $2 million. Fuck you. Suck 20 dicks. Now, it has to be stated, because it's very important to the story, that Jazzo was offered a deal with them. But he declined because he didn't think that the deal was that good. Mind you, again, this is a man who is very anti-establishment. He's very anti-the anti, anti the, the record industry, anti-labels, anti-people owning his music, blah, blah, blah. Um, and this was what had started the initial breakdown of his relationship with Jay-Z, which is now very famous today. Like, this is a very famous friendship breakup. Um, Jay felt like, you know, a door was being slammed in his face after all they had gone through to secure this deal, you know, after years and years of cheating death in prison and hustling their fucking asses off and carrying around giant beatboxes, beatbox machines with taped on microphones, they got a deal, a $2 million deal with a major label that they would be happy to be a part of. And he turned his back. And this is also extremely prominent in who Jay-Z is as an artist and as a person who navigates the industry. This is what he does. He becomes very close to someone that he looks up to in some way, and he attaches himself to that person, and he then ends up surpassing them and sort of moves on from them. Like, he's a shark in that sense, and so many people have described him that way. And, you know, it's hard to say whether or not, like, I don't think that I can give you a definitive answer whether or not I, not I think Jay-Z is, like, a good person or a bad person. We don't know Jay-Z. We don't know Sean Carter. We know Jay-Z. You know what I mean? But I do think it's very ironic that there's this whole string of men that have been burned by him in a very similar way, who feel slighted by him, who helped him get to some certain point in his career and then when it was time for him to move on from them, he just moved on. Um, 
like like I said earlier, he really knew when to cut the head off of a relationship. He knew when it needed to be done. And the really funny thing is that Jay then stopped returning Jazz's calls. So they lost touch completely until Jay would need something. Like he needed a song to be mixed a certain way that nobody else could do because, you know, they didn't have like that thing that he had with Jazz or he needed lyrics to maybe be tweaked or a word to be switched around and he couldn't figure out which way to do it. So he would call Jazz. All of a sudden he would have a phone and he would call Jazz and Jazz would help him and then he wouldn't hear from him again for, you know, eight months to a year, you know what I mean? Or, or even longer. Now, by this particular point in the 90s, the sort of like mid 90s era, rappers had really sort of wised up to the idea that you could make money by simply mentioning a brand in a song. Like that was like a newer thing, but people were catching on to how it worked. And obviously, like the oldest example of that that you can kind of pinpoint would be like a Run DMC when they were sponsored by Adidas. But that was a thing that just sort of happened out of nowhere. Like they genuinely were mentioning Adidas, mentioning Adidas in their music. And then Adidas reached out to them. They weren't doing it with the intention of like having a deal with Adidas or whatever. Um, but by the time, you know, Jay-Z came around, like they were a lot more business savvy and they were like, well, you should start trying to make money from these, these like fashion labels. And the idea of, 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 of hip hop having, fashion influence is also such a new thing you know what I mean um they contacted this brand Iceberg that was super big in the 90s and they had already featured them in a song they were like hey can we possibly be paid <laughs> we shouted you out in a song can we have some money the brand said absolutely not they didn't want to be associated with like a, a rapper at the time that was like kind of an unheard of thing so they decided to start their own clothing line, which was, again, unheard of. Um, and with the invention of Rockaware, Jay was basically creating... Jay-Z had this idea from a very early stage in his career that he was going to invent a lifestyle brand before that was really a thing or had a name. He had established himself as someone who you know, would rap about material things and nice cars and cigars and women and private planes. And he created this illusion that he was living the life that every man dreams of. And that's why you buy his music because you get transported into this, this like dream world where all of a sudden you're on a yacht and you're shooting a money gun into the ocean and you have girls in gold thongs with, that are above the, the hip bone twerking on you you know what I mean? And this is your life. He was basically the Sonia Morgan of hip hop, if you will. <laughs> um, and Jay-Z is such an interesting character because his impact on the black community is so polarizing. You know, there are people who celebrate his contribution and look at him as with, with all this like reverence and respect. And then there are people who view him as someone to blame for the way the black community is viewed in this country and for really spearheading this culture of excess and, you know, degradation of women and, 
you know, obsessions with like these empty materialistic things that we can't really afford. But Jay-Z's saying that we need to be able to afford them. Like that was a really, really big conversation in the 90s. Like that was something that I, I, I feel like even kind of bled over into the 2000s for him where he was sitting down with Oprah and explaining that he wasn't a monster because a lot of people really felt like Jay-Z was the culprit for um, terrible behavior for people, which is crazy. So as Jay's career begins to explode and his partnership with Def Jam snowballs into something more, Jay starts realizing that not only could he do most of the stuff that he's paying people to do himself, but he could do it without having to look over his shoulder every minute to check and see if somebody's trying to fuck him over or make some decision without telling him. And Jay was, in fact, at this time, the only artist on the label. So he had really cemented himself with this massive string of hits. Um, In 1998, he released Hard Knock Life, which was the label's first platinum release. And it was Jay's first album to debut at number one. By 2000, he had released five albums and was one of, if not the biggest name in rap at that time. And this is also the era of, you know, his life where you can see him kind of taking a more creative risk and bringing in artists like Timbaland and Pharrell and collaborating with people like Linkin Park and doing all these really unexpected, unexpected things, really just to kind of like hammer home how talented he is right before he decides to pull out of music for a short period, not to skip ahead. But Rockefeller had also acquired Cameron, uh, Beanie Siegel, uh, what was the other one? Memphis Bleak and Dipset, of course. And then Dame signed Old Dirty Bastard and MOP. So him and Jay were signing people sort of like, you can see their friendship sort of dissolving at this point. They're handling this business in completely different ways. They're not communicating with each other. Jay is signing people and not telling Dame, and Dame is signing people and not telling Jay. This is where things at the label really spiraled out of control, and this is where I think Dame Dash really cemented his reputation as being this sort of unstable, hard-to-work-with fucker. Um, He was spending outrageous amounts of money. He was being verbally abusive to the staff. He was like getting in people's faces and they were making $400 million a year at this point. And Dame was spending money like it was unlimited. Like it was guaranteed that for the rest of their lives, they would be making the same amount of money, if not more. You know what I mean? Like he was losing his shit. Um, He was firing people left and right, but then begging them to show up to work the next day. He was completely out of control and all the while, conservative rap prodigy Jay-Z is telling him, you need to calm the fuck down. This is a business that we're running. Like, we're not we're not in the fucking streets anymore. We, this is a big deal. You know what I mean? Like, you were yelling at people in a boardroom that we own. Like, we are the owners of a record label. Like, get a grip. Um, there's actually a video on YouTube from Worldstar that shows... It was secretly recorded and it shows Dame having a, just going on a tirade to their employees, walking in circles around this boardroom table, just fucking carrying on, screaming at people 
berating people, attacking people, just going fucking nuts, screaming in people's faces. Um, so Jay started conducting major business meetings and deals without him being allowed in the room. And, you know, Dame Dash became a very serious liability. And, you know, the thing that he once loved about him, that he would play bad cop for him and, you know, strong arm people for him eventually became the thing that forced them to have to split. And at the time, Jay was on this journey of like becoming a totally different kind of business owner. You know what I mean? I also believe, as I stated before, that Jay knows when it is time to cut the head off of a relationship. This was a relationship that did not serve him any longer. It didn't, you know, contribute contribute to his greater good, which is to become uh, a, a Rockefeller or whatever, to, to own the world. So he needed to go. Um, there were these very calculated rumors in 2002 that Jay started with the label that he was going to retire. He wanted to, you know, sort of, he basically wanted to set a bookend to this like drug dealer turned rapper period of his life. You know what I mean? And, and, and entered the business mogul label owner phase of his career. During his retirement concert in New York City, he did the first half of the show wearing his typical shirt, you know, like t-shirt and jeans, like a Rockaway t-shirt and jeans. And then for the second half, he came out in a full head-to-toe suit look really to symbolize the death of this former identity. You know what I mean? And he ended up signing a deal to become the CEO of Def Jam, which officially cemented him as this like business mogul and um yeah he also became the owner of his masters which is a major deal like it's one thing to be a successful artist but to be a successful artist that artist that owns your masters you own the rights to all of your music that is like that's like basically owning the world because that can be twisted and turned and manipulated and sold and and for the i mean for, until the end of time um so the official story goes that jay took dame dash out to dinner and broke the news to him that he was going to become the ceo of def jam and that he had already accepted the offer he told dame that he and biggs would retain full control of Rockefeller and that if he wanted um he was basically in a roundabout way saying you can handle Rockefeller. It's beneath me now. It's underneath me. So I will kind of be your boss. Um, and I just leapfrogged you <laughs> without you knowing I signed a deal that puts me ahead of you. That makes me millions and millions and millions of dollars more than you. Um, that gives me more control than you and sets me, in a completely different, uh, I'm, I'm the 1% now. I'm a owner of a major label and you are the owner of a kind of label underneath me. Just so you know. Uh, and he also said, and by the way, can I have the rights to my first album? Thank you so much. Um, and basically that there's nothing that you can do about it. <laughs> you know what I mean? I've already done it. You have no power. Sorry. Sorry about it. Um, Dame obviously freaked out. 
he was given his own imprint, Rock for Life, which later became Dame Dash Music Group, and that eventually just fizzled out. Jay and Dame started very publicly fighting over talent. And so you had Kanye, who was, at the time, I think he had just released... No, he was... Kanye was a producer at the time. He had just released College Dropout when this was all going on, because it was like 2004. And the artists were being split up. So Kanye stuck with Jay, which obviously worked out very great for both of them. And then um, Dipset and a couple of other artists went with Dame. So then Dipset started releasing Jay-Z diss tracks on Dame's label. And Dame was doing interviews constantly, interview after interview after interview after interview on how heartbroken he was and how hurt he was by his former friend, his brother, and he can't believe that he did this to him. And, you know, he had a lot of news circulating about his bankruptcies and how bad he was with money. He was foreclosing, having homes foreclosed on. And the crazy thing is that Dame Dash has never really been able to recover from this. Like, he is forever in the news for some fuckery, just something terrible. A few years ago, there was a story that came out that he was being sued by the owner of the apartment or building or something that he lived in because it was trashed and it was like a drug dwelling and there were like bongs and fucking um, cigarette burns all over the place and he was being charged for that. Um, he, I think two days ago, he was in the news because he has like $950,000 worth of child support that he hasn't paid. So all of the, his baby babas are taking him, like Rachel Roy is literally like business suited the house down, taking him to court to get money for child support. He never, ever, ever has positive news come out about him. Like he's always involved in just a bunch of fuckery and he, he is also by the way always talking about jay he's always talking about jay-z because now he's famous for this feud and it's just sad like it's it's crazy and now jay-z is in this like jay-z belongs in a group of people like i said that know where the bodies are buried they know the codes they know where to go when the world is in, and they know all the things. Jay-Z is one of the 1%. He owns sports teams. Like, he is, a, he's on his way to becoming, according to Forbes, to becoming a billionaire very soon. So it's just fucking wild. But I had to tell the story of Jay-Z and Dame Dash because it's just so iconic, and there's so much more to be told. But like I said, you guys run it by me. Next week, we are starting to talk about Jay and Beyonce's relationship. So that means Lemonade and, I mean, Bonnie and Clyde. Like, going all the way back. Like, all of it. And it's so much. Like I said earlier, we could literally do an entire two hours about Lemonade alone. So in my opinion, this is going to have to be broken down. This was all sort of, as you know, this was housekeeping that needed to be done. <laughs> we needed to dust. Um, so let me know if you think that'll be too much. Be honest. Be honest with me. I, I I won't mind. We could even, I don't know. We'll figure it out. But I don't know if I have anything else to say. My my voice hurts. Um, and it's like four in the morning here now. 
<laughs> and I'm exhausted and I no longer want to talk about Jay-Z. This wasn't dark or anything, though. It could have been, but I decided to kind of keep it light a little bit. And I don't know, it's the holidays, you know what I mean? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I got to get off the hot mic here because I'm starting to get delusional. But I love you guys very, very much. Please let me know. Like I said, DM me, comment on this post. Let me know if I'm out of my mind and thinking that it's even a possibility that we could do four episodes about Beyonce and Jay-Z. Or let me know if it's not so crazy and if you're actually kind of looking forward to it. Either way, I'll be fine with it because I love you and adore you. I will see you in church this coming Sunday. And uh, that's all I have to say. (laughs) Bye. Thank you for listening to This Mushroom, an Emotionally Broken Psycho's Patreon exclusive. Please head over to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review. Also, be sure to head over to patreon.com slash ebpsychos for more information on this show and other Patreon-exclusive content. You can follow me on Twitter at Troy McEady. That's T-R-O-Y-M-C-E-A-D-Y. Thank you to executive producer Molly McAleer and coordinating producer Nicole Matthew. the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.